and we're going to get started. Let me lead us in prayer as we look at these two psalms this evening, Psalms 9 and 10. You should have that handout in front of you. You'll notice it is covered in unintelligible squiggles. Hebrew is what that is. Make sure you're sitting comfortably because in a few minutes you won't be. Let's pray together and then we'll get started. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for one another, for the food that we've eaten, for the hands who prepared it, and for your spirit who indwells us, inhabiting our community and our lives and our families, uniting us with Christ and so drawing us to you. And we thank you for your spirit's work in inspiring the scriptures in all their intricacy and beauty and detail. And we ask now that you open our eyes to some of their richness, richness that perhaps we've not seen in the past, that we may know you better be drawn close to you in affliction and give thanks to you in all circumstances. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The title at the top of the handout this evening is The Lord Will Hear. It's taken from the final verse or two of Psalm 10, which is where we're headed this evening, Psalm 10, verse 17, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. Psalms 9 and 10 unite to affirm that glorious truth, that the Lord hears the desires of the afflicted. But I have a rather ambitious plan this evening, uh, because I'd like to take you through this psalm, actually these two psalms, Psalms 9 and 10, And you will know, if you've got your Bibles and if your Bible is like mine, if I look in the footnote of my English Standard Version of the Bible, um, and I don't have the ESV because I think it's the only decent translation, I think it's pretty good most of the time, which is about the most you can hope for, for a Bible translation. Um, It is very good a lot of the time. Uh, It says in a little footnote... Psalms 9 and 10 together follow an acrostic pattern. Hands up if you've heard the word acrostic before. Yeah, some of you know what this is. Each stanza beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It also then says in the Septuagint, which is the old Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written mostly in Hebrew, apart from a few bits of Aramaic here and there. In the old Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are actually one psalm. And so I'd like to take you through this evening, and I'd like to draw your attention to the things that the acrostic teaches us. Now, this is somewhat ambitious, because I'm conscious that, well, my Hebrew isn't, you know, fluent. I can't just read vast swathes rapidly. One or two of you may have studied this in the past. Most of you won't have done, and therefore, if I start talking about Hebrew letters and so on, it's going to be a bit odd. So I've I've tried to lay out this handout in such a way that when I take you through it, you'll be able to see. But don't worry about that just um, too much um, just yet. We'll come to it in a second. I want to first talk about why this matters. Like, why would your pastor take your valuable time to explain all these kind of details of this strange Hebrew poetic form whereby... 
the first letter of the first stanza is an Aleph, like an, no, it's not like an A, but the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then Beit, then Gimel, then Dalit, like A, B, C, D. Why would we do this? And there's a number of things that it's helpful to bear in mind when we're reading poetry. But the overarching point, and this is something that Peter Lightheart says in his book, Deep Exegesis, is that the message is not separable from the form in which the message comes. We're not here to abstract doctrinal nuggets from the messy literary husk of the Bible and sort of toss aside all the figures of speech and imagery and symbolism and chiasms and acrostics and all that jazz. Rather, all that jazz, pun intended, is part of the the message. And one of the ways that we need to learn to read and to hear the Bible is is to feel the impact of that symbolism upon us. And particularly this is the case when we're reading poetry. Um, you know, if, I don't know many poems by heart, you know. But if I, if I said, you know, Dolce et decorum est by Wilfred Owen, yeah, the message of that poem is that the First World War was really bad. You know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Yeah, uh, the message of that poem is that my wife's really pretty. It's like, no, you, <laughs> you can't... <coughs> pardon me, choking up again. <laughs> it's catching. Um, You can't do that with poetry because the whole point of poetry is it transports you emotionally as well as cognitively. And that presents a problem because none of us, apart from perhaps Pastor Neil, knows Hebrew well enough to actually feel the visceral character of it just by reading it. We need to have it explained. And the problem is sometimes it's lost in the explanation, but we can try. I'm going to try. So what does it do? Well, one of the things that it does is it kind of carries you through one step at a time. Once the reader realizes it's an acrostic, A, B, C, D, you kind of know where you're going. There's a sort of predictable shape to it. It feels like you know what's happening next, and it's got a a predictable end to which it's going, because you get to the end of the alphabet, the final letter, Tav, and you're done. And so what that means in turn is that whenever you get a deviation from that pattern, it's really striking. And what's really interesting about this acrostic poem, Psalms 9 and 10, is that there are lots of deviations from it. Whenever you see patterns in the Bible, don't be put off because there are bits of patterns that are broken. Those are probably the interesting bits or the most interesting bits. And, And so we'll look at some of those in a minute as well. And, of course, the final thing to say about this particular acrostic is it it does join the two psalms together. Um, And you could imagine, I'm sure you can imagine, scholars have debated for years, was this originally written as one poem and then got chopped into two, and if so, why? Or was it written originally as two poems and then somebody noticed that if you tweaked a bit here and there, you could make it into an acrostic, and so they sort of slapped it together and... And, well, nobody really knows how the, the psalms were composed and that people speculate about the history of them, of course, but nobody really knows. But, see, what we've got to wrestle with is what biblical scholars increasingly are coming to realise is we've got the final form of the text in front of us. This is what Jesus had, more or less. This is what the Spirit has preserved for us. We've got to wrestle with it as we have it, and it is therefore both two psalms, 9 and 10, and one poem. So what, 
What do we gain from that insight? Actually, we gain something quite significant. Once you realize the message of the Psalms, Psalms 9 and 10, very briefly, and we're going to work through them both in a a couple of minutes, Psalm 9 is a psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance from our enemies. Verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad. I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, and so on. So Psalm 9 is, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from my enemies. Which makes Psalm 10 really weird. Because Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor, and so on. So Psalm 10, it's thankfulness for a deliverance that's already been received. Psalm 9, it's like, Lord, why are you so far away when I need your deliverance? When I am being oppressed or hated or when I am uh, experiencing hostility or whatever it is. It shouldn't be the other way around. Shouldn't it be the first one is, why are you far off? And then, oh, I give thanks to you because you've rescued me. And the answer is, no, it shouldn't be. And here's the crucially important lesson that we get from these two psalms being this way around we seek the lord in times of trouble psalm 10 as those who have already been delivered in christ psalm 9 let me say that again we've oh, the other way around chiasm you see we've already been delivered from sin and death Our enemies have already been overcome. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. We lack nothing in Christ to accomplish all that the Lord has for us, to stand up under all the temptations that are placed before us, to fight off all the wickedness of the world by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We lack none of that, and we can give thanks to God for that. And it's with that disposition in mind, because of Psalm 9, that we can approach Psalm 10 in the times when it does feel like the Lord stands far off. We're not coming to the Lord wondering who's going to win. We're coming to the Lord as those who give thanks because Christ already has the victory, Psalm 9. So with that spirit, we can come to the Lord, Psalm 10, and ask for his help. You with me? So it's a very, very theologically and personally significant shape to these two psalms just without before we've even looked at any of the detail of either of them so much for the the big picture right what i want to do is just talk us through the um the granular detail i'm not going to read it and then go through it i'll read it and narrate it as i go through it because otherwise it would just take it's quite long and it'll take take too long but i think by god's grace we might get through it you know, in 20 minutes or so, maybe. Well, I'll do my best, okay. And then we'll have plenty of time for singing. So just, just have this in your mind. So Psalm 9 is a song of thankfulness to the Lord for his deliverance from us. Psalm 10 inhabits the perspective of one who knows the power of the Lord's rescue and then says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? And when will you come to deliver me? So, now look at the all these notes I've got in front of you. The main part of the text on this handout is very simple. It's just the text of Psalms 9 and 10. 
I've made a few tweaks just to get the word order to reflect more accurately the Hebrew word order at one or two points because that's important. But mostly it's just the text of Psalm 9 on the one side and Psalm 10 on the other. Then what you've got is those squiggles that you don't recognize. Those are Hebrew letters. And you don't even know what they're called, most of them, most of you. So I've then told you what they're called in English to the left of that. Can you see Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Hey, there's Dalet in grey. Why is that over there? Come to that in a second. Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yod, Kaf, over the page, Lamed, Ayin, and all these others, right? Those are just the names of Hebrew letters. And then it turns out that it matters very much which order they come in, but you don't know that either, so I've told you which order they actually come in in the alphabet, because I've numbered them all. You with me? So Aleph is number one, Beit is number two, Gimel is number three, Dalet is number four, Hey is number five, and so on. You with me? Then, the final thing you need to know is the colour coding. The normal stuff is green. When the letters appear in the place you'd expect them to, the right letters in the right places, they're green. But when there's something a bit odd about it, they're in red, or they're in grey, or they're in blue, or they're in purple. And that will help me to remember which things I need to point out something about and help you to be ready for me to explain what's a bit odd there. You with me? Oh, yeah, one final thing. The parts that I've highlighted in bold and colour and underlined in the text in English, they correspond to the word that has the acrostic letter in it. You with me? So the first phrase, I will give thanks begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and those of you who are Hebrew scholars know that's because when you conjugate Hebrew verbs, the first person singular has an Aleph at the beginning of it. So I will, I will, I will, I will is always going to have an Aleph unless it's some weird verb that you're dealing with. Are you ready? Hold on to your seats, Dorothy. Let's see how deep this rabbit hole goes. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And at this point, the Hebrew reader is thinking, I wonder, all these Alephs, all these first letters of the alphabet, is this going to be an acrostic? And of course it is, verse 2, B-bait. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So now the Hebrew reader who's being attentive and knows his Aleph Beit, alphabet. That's where we get the word alphabet from, by the way. Aleph Beit. Is suspecting that the poet has an acrostic in store for him. Yeah? But he's noticed something else. Aleph, 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 Aleph. There's too many Alephs. It's like the poet wants to really, really underline what he's saying in verses 1 and 2. So he gets like a stuck record. You know, when, Some of you remember what records are. Most of you don't know what I'm talking about. But it's these things that go round and round like CDs. Actually, you don't know what CDs are either. My goodness. Technology deprives pastors of all their best illustrations. <laughs> anyway, a stuck record for those of you who know what it is. Like, I will, I will, I will, I will. Like that, because it's just so important. Well, sometimes it's... Stuck record, you just wish it had moved on. But you don't want to move on from this. You don't want to move on from giving thanks to the Lord. Don't ever, don't ever move on. Whatever Psalm 10 has in store from you, for you from giving thanks to the Lord. It's interesting, however terrible our circumstances, we have something to give thanks for. Um, my wife Nicole read, is it The Hiding Place? 
by Corrie ten Boom. Is that the one with the fleas? Corrie ten Boom and a friend of hers end up at a concentration camp, and you guys are nodding because you've read it, and, and they get into their kind of sleeping quarters, quote-unquote, and there's fleas everywhere, and Corrie ten Boom says, right, we're going to give thanks to God for the fleas, and her friend is like, okay, this is just ridiculous now. And it turns out, is that the other way around? No, it's the other way around. Yeah. It's her sister. It's her sister. <laughs> and it wasn't a concentration camp, it was, I don't know. what. But, and it wasn't Corrie ten Boom, it was Mother Teresa. And it, but you can fill in the story. Anyway, it turns out that the fleas, Nicole fixed this illustration for me. The fleas kept the prison guards away, is that right? So, so they could do Bible study in there. So we're going to thank God in, or maybe even for, all circumstances. You guys could have preached that bit far better than I did. Verse 5. Now, the sensitive Hebrew reader's suspicions are confirmed, you see, because Aleph Beit Gimel, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right on schedule. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Now, this is obviously related to what we talked about previously when we talked about imprecatory psalms. How does the Lord rescue the righteous? By overthrowing the wicked. If you don't want the righteous sufferers to be saved, you can dispense with imprecatory psalms. But presumably we do want that. And one way in which the Lord delivers the afflicted is precisely by overthrowing those who are afflicting them. That's something we talked about before. So this is an imprecatory psalm, as is Psalm 10. Verse 6, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But hold on a second, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Hey. The letters go 1, 2, 3, 5. What's happened to the fourth letter of the alphabet? The letter Dalet is missing. You see it's in grey and there's a little arrow saying it's, just, it's nowhere in that where it should be. It's as though it's just disappeared from the face of the earth. Why would the poet have constructed the poem in this way? Because the enemies have been blotted out. So the, the letter Dalet has vanished. So completely will those who oppose the people of God be blotted out. Isn't that beautiful and slightly frightening? Blotted out without trace, nowhere in those lines. Verse 7. Vav, the sixth letter of the alphabet. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And, Vav again, he judges the world in righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. And, Vav again, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And, Vav, again, verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Vav, 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 Vav. Vav is a really easy letter to to slot into an acrostic because it means and or but. Um, But it's really, really elegantly done here, isn't it? Because the, the poet uses this opportunity to underscore something else four times this time, not five times, Five might be a symbol of strength. The strength with which we lift our hearts in thanksgiving to the Lord in verse 1 and 2. It's used in the imagery for military, um, the the way the soldiers are arranged for battle. Five in a rank. 
Four has more to do with the global extent of something, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven. Across the whole world, all four corners of the world, the Lord sits enthroned. So vav, 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 four times. Let all the world hear that the Lord sits enthroned. And then we jump back into this very regular acrostic pattern. And this is the thing that you, know, you look for just to reassure yourself that you're not seeing things. You know, this is genuinely a, a structure within the poem. And we just, let's just read through verses 11 and following. Sing praises to the Lord, Zion, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. You see this is going into more detail about how the Lord acts mercifully and has acted mercifully to defend his people. Hate, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. Now we've got shades of Psalm 10 leaking in. He is now afflicted and seeks the Lord's deliverance. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, and in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Tate, 15. They have sunk the nations in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He's executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Then you've got those two musical terms, Higayon and Selah. Nobody really knows what they mean. There are all kinds of theories about it. Um, maybe it's a name of a type of poem, or it means some kind of musical pause, or it's a kind of you know, guitar solo or something. It's unlikely to be that. But you notice there's a very regular pattern to this. The be gracious to me section is a little bit longer. You can easily imagine why that would be. But mostly they're quite regular in length. Then verse 17. So we've had Zion, Chet, Tait, Yod. Verse 17. They shall return the wicked to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Now, what's a bit odd about those two? Those last two little stanzas? You've had the nice regular length of four lines, or perhaps six lines, as I've set it out. And then it goes, it goes two lines, and then six One is really short about the wicked who return to Sheol, whose lives and of whose memory, the the memory of whom is forgotten. And then the needy shall not be forgotten. We're going to talk more about the needy. Can you see what the poem is doing? It's extending its reflection on the things that really matter the things that God won't forget. The the wicked shall be consigned to Sheol and forgotten in two short lines, but the needy will not be forgotten. And so we turn over the page to Psalm 10, which places us in the position of experiencing the plight of the needy and begins with the all-too-predictable and all-too-painful question, verse 1. Lamed. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? Oh, this is a bit odd, because the Lamed is repeated twice. And why is that? Well, it's interestingly, it's not 
two times y. The, the second y isn't actually there in the Hebrew text, but the, the lamed, the, the letter, like a letter L, is attached as a preposition to um, times of trouble. It means towards times of trouble or in times of trouble. But the lamed is repeated. Why, O Lord? Lamed. And why would you repeat that word? Well, ask somebody who's suffering. How many times do they ask the question? Don't we just, you know, you keep asking, you keep asking until the suffering goes away, and it doesn't often, so we just keep asking. And your experience of praying for the same thing again and again, and not, not feeling like you're being answered is not unique to you. You've not done something wrong because the Lord didn't answer your prayer immediately. I'm troubled by the thought that people think that people are like people are like the people who. Sorry, let me try that again. We're 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 instinctively like the people who spoke to Jesus in John nine, aren't we? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Surely he wouldn't have been born blind if nobody done anything wrong. I mean, surely I'm being afflicted because I'm some kind of wicked person. I'm being punished. No. Surely the Lord won't answer my prayers and it's because he doesn't want to hear me. He'll listen to everybody else but not me. No. The psalmist, the inspired psalmist of Israel, has to repeat his why. Lamed, letter 12. Verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Okay, and now the wheels come flying off. Our beautiful acrostic poem. Because it looks like it continues up to verse 1 of Psalm 10 and then stops abruptly. Because what's happened is a couple of different things. First, the next three letters after the Lamed letter, the one that looks like a lightning strike, is how I always used to think of it. L for lightning, Lamed. It's like down, across, and down again. The next three letters, letters, 13, 14, and 15, Mem, Nun, and Samech, have just disappeared. They're nowhere to be found. The next one after that, Ayin, isn't at the beginning of the line, it's at the end of the line. And it's like, okay, either this is a very, very badly broken acrostic or it's not an acrostic at all. Now, it turns out it is an acrostic, and you know that because it picks it up later on. So why is it so badly broken? What's happened to these three letters, Memnon and Samek? Where have they gone? Well, they've gone the same place that the Lord seems to have gone. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? Like those three letters, Memnon and Samek, the triune God seems to disappear, vanishing like this pale grey, not present anymore cluster of letters and to make matters worse verse 2 in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor why is the ayin the initial letter of the word poor ani why is it at the end of the line rather than at the beginning of the line well it's obvious isn't it because they're being pursued they're running away They've run away all the way to the end of the line. I think it's a, it's a beautiful piece of poetry, and it's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? Because you, you can see 
This is why it's so important that we don't divorce meaning from form in Scripture. You can see in the actual letters on the page that God has hidden himself, Memnon and Samech, they're not there, and the poor are running away and hiding because they're so frightened. The poor, in the sense of poor and afflicted and downtrodden and abused, which often went hand in hand in ancient Israel for understandable reasons. And then all you've got in this period where God is hidden, you've got three stanzas Verses 3, 4, and 5 that should be part of this nice, beautiful acrostic that should reflect the fact that God is there, but he doesn't seem to be there. And all you can see as you're running away, like the afflicted poor, running away with your iron to the end of the line, all you can see are the wicked. Verse 3. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. And he just doesn't care. And there will be times where you get really close to the edge of thinking, maybe I'm just mad. Maybe it would be better to go back to Egypt. Maybe it would be better to join the Uh, the wicked scoffers of the world who never seem to have any problems, Psalm 73, and who boast of the desire of their soul and they insist that there's no God and everything seems to be going fine for them. And as far as I can see, God has hidden himself. He doesn't seem to be there. As for his foes, He puffs at them. He says in his heart, this is still this wicked pursuer. We're in verse 6. I shall not be moved. Hold on to that thought for a second. That's what the wicked man says as he's oppressing the, the faithful, afflicted poor. I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. With cursing, his mouth is filled with deceit and oppression. Under his tongue, a mischief and iniquity. And something very odd has happened here. I wonder if you can figure out, just from, I've tried to illustrate it with arrows, what's happened to the Hebrew letters in the acrostic in verses, uh, verses 6 and 7? Um, Joel Husted did it with his fingers. Just, yeah, can you see? The order of them has been reversed. The Hebrew alphabet goes, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samech, Ayin, Pei, Tzade. And here it goes, Sade, pay. They've been, they've been moved around. And they've not only been moved around like reversed in order, they've been moved from the front of the line two or three steps back in the line. As for all his foes, Sade, with cursing his mouth, pay. Why? Why has the Lord moved the letters around? Well, because what does the wicked say in his heart, verse 6? He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. The Lord is like, really? Really? It's just the most spectacularly... uh, This is not just beautiful poetry. This is... um, It's that that moment... I don't know whether you remember Mike Tyson. I I illustrated something using Mike Tyson in one of my theology classes the other day. You've got to go and watch videos of Mike Tyson in his prime, where he's sort of being battered a little bit by somebody who's trying to, you know, one of his opponents. 
And then he does that sort of thing where he does that shuffle with his feet and then he sort of unloads from his knees, hips, torso, chest, arm, upwards. And the, his opponent's head kind of comes flying off his shoulders. Not quite, literally, flying off his shoulders. He says, the Lord is just... At the moment that these wicked oppressors think, I shall not be moved. The Lord's like, <clears throat> let's, just, let's just wait a moment before we reach that conclusion, shall we? I'm just going to move some letters around just to hint at where we're going. Verse 8. Oh my goodness. The Lord doesn't seem to have done anything yet. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks the name he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He said in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. So much for you moving me around, O Lord. And it's fascinating. You see the letter that's repeated there over and over and over again? It's the Hebrew letter Yod, as in jot and tittle. Not one jot or tittle shall disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's the smallest letter, smallest consonant letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's repeated how many times? Seven times? It's like, it's miles out of order. Yod Yod doesn't belong here. Where have you seen the letter Yod before? Go back, turn over the page. And look at verse 12. Verse 12 has the Yod, the little kind of upside down L, in the right place. What's verse 12 about? They shall return, the wicked, to Sheol. Sorry, did I say verse 12? Verse 17, sorry. Thank you, Mrs. Just scratch that last 30 seconds. Verse, verse 17. Yeah, you're looking at verse 12 thinking, what's Pastor Jeffrey talking about now? This is like deep, weird exegesis. Verse 17, pardon me. That's where you see that letter Yod. So what's happening in Psalm... I'll try and straighten this out, the mess I just made. In Psalm 10, the psalmist is recalling again and again and again and again and again by talking about what the wicked oppressors of the people of God do. Psalm 9, verse 17, which is where the Yod first appeared in the right place. In Psalm 10, it looks like this wicked oppressor of God's people is triumphant, ready to devour his prey, lurking in ambush, seizing the poor, crushing the helpless. And that's all you can see, but your mind is called back to Psalm 9, verse 17, they shall return to Sheol. Their days are numbered, even while they seem triumphant. Even, and this is just the most, perhaps the most important lesson from this psalm, even at that point where the, the triumph of the wicked seems complete, because seven, yeah? Seven yods. They, they will return to the grave. All of them. Every last one of them. Their days are numbered. And when will that happen? Verse 12. Arise. Kum. 
It's a, the Hebrew letter kof. It's like a Q. As in talitakum, when Jesus says to the little girl, get up, talitakum. Kum means uh, kumi, it's Aramaic, it's similar to Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's kum, means get up. The same imagery is used, of course, of Jesus' resurrection. The rising of God the Son is the moment of victory over the wicked who seemed to triumph, which is exactly what happened at Jesus' resurrection, isn't it? At the point where life is in the grave... Darkness covers the earth. Somebody rose to triumph over evil. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And then the acrostic just resumes normal business, so to speak. Reish the 20th letter of the alphabet, but you do see, you do note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to the helpless, to, to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the, help, the father of the fatherless. And now the imprecation we've all been waiting for. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from the land. And now, just as the threefold God was apparently missing, Mem, Nun, and Samech, three missing letters, the triune God seemed to have vanished, and now he reappears. Because three times the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet concludes the psalm, verse 17. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart, You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord will hear. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, thank you for this beautiful poem. Thank you for the hope about which it speaks. We pray you would teach us to live by faith in its message. And so in the living Lord Jesus, who rose as the Lord to bring victory over all evil. And we pray in his name. Amen.